Henry Ford, in 1916, uh, advocating for not intervening into World War I, I mean not going into it, not participating in America, said this, History is more or less bunk. It is tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present, and only, the only history that is worth a tinker's dam is the history we make today. That's the trouble with the world. We're living in books and history and tradition. We want to get away from that and take care of today. We've done too much looking back. What we want to do, and do it quick, is to make just history right now. Now, to be fair, right, Ford was advocating that written history focused too much on kings and queens and battles, battles and wars and past grievances. It had little to do with the common people and our experience day in and day out. And I would certainly agree with Ford that history is focused too much on conflicts, too much on wars, and too much on the powerful and the victors. Right? History is won, is written by those who won. But I'll take it a little step further than Ford. Our recorded history... Our perspective on history and the present is actually too focused on us. Not just the victors, on us, humans. Our retelling and remembering of history is too focused on our pride, on our accomplishments, on what the good we have done. And we have certainly looked back, some of us have have examined a little bit of American history this year, and we have seen that it has been whitewashed, how it's been taught. And, uh, so, but that doesn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise any of us, because when we tell our story to people, we don't tell them all the terrible things. We tell them all the highlights. Let me tell you about my past. And so you tell them all the great things. And I mean, we certainly remember. We still remember the past things. We just don't highlight it, or record it. I want to look back at that key verse last week, Habakkuk 2.4. Right? It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Now his, they're talking about the Babylonians. So their souls are puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Here God is telling Habakkuk that the Babylonians are conceited, arrogant, and they are filled with pride in comparison to the righteous. The righteous are not filled with pride. They're filled with what? Faith. Faith in God. And remember, we learned last week that the, the best way to understand that in, in our terms, righteousness is forgiven, right? Psalm 32 makes that comparison for us, right? So the righteous is the forgiven or the repentant. So the opposite, I want you to hear this very clearly, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is pride. And remember this book, Habakkuk, it starts with Habakkuk's burden and complaint. He starts with doubt. He starts that doubt out that, God, are you even working? Are you even here? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this injustice why allow your people to be so horrible and terrible? So he complains to God about the evil of his people. Where are you, God? Those are the words of doubt. Those are the words of doubt. 
but the direction of those words are faithful because he brings them to God. Where are you, God? I doubt that you're here. I doubt that you're working. But he brings them to God. The direction is faithful. The mustard seed of faith in the doubt was not in the knowledge or the answer to his doubt, but in bringing the doubt to God. That is a major difference. So the, the, the little ounce of faith that he had, that he actually brought it to God. Not in the answer, not in the knowledge that God actually was present or doing something, but I'm going to bring it to you. Engaging in a real relationship. And of course then, we get in Habakkuk too that God answers. He tells Habakkuk that he is working and that you really wouldn't understand my plan. My ways are greater than your ways. My understanding is greater than yours. And so he tells, look, I'm going I'm to bring a worse people, more evil people, the Babylonians, and they're going to discipline my people. And they're going to judge my people. And then Habakkuk addresses God again and says, what? Where is, what is that plan? Where is the justice in that? And then he says, I'll wait for it. I'll wait for it. I'm going to wait in silence, God. Once again, doubt in God is directed faithfully towards God. And of course, then God, as we learned last week, answers him and says, wait for it. Wait for it. My justice is coming. It seems slow, but my justice is coming. And we learned last week that the, that the slowness, the seeming slowness of God, the waiting, is actually his grace towards us. The point I think we're getting in the book of Habakkuk is quite clear and is uh, emphasized in this chapter. Habakkuk engages God with his doubt. Habakkuk faithfully engages God with his doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is pride. Right, last week we learned that this word faith, right, pistis in the New Testament, right, there's really kind of three aspects, aspects of it, what, what he's talking about, right? Faith as an idea of adherence to a fact, to a, a certain known truth, or faith as also a, a, I'm going to trust in a person, a thing, or an object. And then the last aspect of faith, and of faith is faithfulness, an action, Something we do, and so then we, it's, that understanding of faith just takes away this whole argument of faith versus works out the door because we understand that faith doesn't earn us salvation either. It is the fruit of salvation. It is the fruit of the work of the Spirit, of God's grace in us. Necessary. Necessary it is. And there's always an action tied to it. And so the righteous, the forgiven, shall live by faith. So where, therefore the forgiven will live by and adhere to certain facts, to certain truths, to certain history. The forgiven trust in God. They trust in Jesus. The forgiven act faithfully. They turn to Jesus. They turn to God in their doubt in their struggles, in their despair. Right, Hebrews 12, 2 says, right, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Notice that we are not the founder and we're not the perfecter of our faith. All three aspects of it. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the act of faithfulness, endurance, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And of course, we know in Hebrews 10, it actually uh, quoted Habakkuk 2.4, and it, it changed that translation, which you can do, into the righteous one. The righteous one shall live by faith, so the righteous one, Jesus, is the one that goes before us, that leads the way. Is the firstborn, the forgiven, the forgiven faithfully turn and trust in God with their doubt. The prideful, the opposite of faith, ignore God and trust in themselves or trust in their silent idols as the Babylonians, it says it did. The Babylonians trusted in their might, in their strength, in their power, in their ability as a, as a, as a nation, the most powerful in the world at the time, the ones that added the most beauty in the world at the time. And they literally carved false idols in which they knew were silent and said, we trust in them. And Habakkuk, and God calls them prideful. It says that they are puffed up. The Babylonians are people puffed up with self-importance and self-reliance. Hmm. Let's think about who that might sound like. Who are people that are, think they're self-important and are self-reliant? I don't, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like me. Why is God pointing me out in this verse? It sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? Like each and every one of us. A culture that trains us to be self-reliant and pick ourselves as self-important. The problem with our pride is that we live between these two advents. This, this period of waiting. This period where at times we feel God is silent. That we feel God is absent. Has everyone, anyone had ever had that feeling? Where is God? Why are you not speaking? Why are you not acting? That is the normal voice of the faithful. That is, a, that is a normal experience of day in and day out in this moment, in this world that is filled with evil, that is filled with people like you and me. And we wonder, where is God? Where is His justice? Why are you not working? The same words as Habakkuk. We are our people that are self-reliant in our own ability and our own might. And here's what we know. That all of us in our pride, that all of us in our expectation that we can handle it, that we can deal with it, this is our experience. Every one of us. If you haven't experienced it, you will experience this. You will experience failure. And you will experience the thing, I can't handle this moment. I can't handle this circumstance. This is overwhelming. You will experience despair. That there's nothing you can do to fix your moment, to fix this circumstance, to fix the evil in the world. You're going to experience, and you have experienced helplessness in this unjust world, in this unjust society. And you're going to wonder, and I know you've said it, how long? I mean, the most often repeated question in the Psalms, how long, Lord? How long? Where are you? 
Why? Why? Why me? And what does this book teach us about living faithfully, living in faithful doubt as compared to living in self-reliant pride? It teaches us in our doubt, we can be faithful. We can faithfully approach God with our doubt, with our despair, with our anger. We can live in a real relationship. We can live in grief. Faithfulness is, is in the bringing, not necessarily in the understanding. I bring this to God. It also teaches us to remember. It teaches us to remember it's, to be a little cheesy, it's his story, not our story. I mean, you actually think about when you read the Old Testament or when you read the New Testament, it does not whitewash the story at all of God's people. Right? As God's people were writing this, you were like, well, I'm going to clean this up a little bit, make us look a little better. It does the exact opposite. This story tells, like, let's tell the worst things we can about God's people. Let's tell the worst thing we can about humanity. That's how it records history. And then it records how God intervenes over and over again because it's his story, not our story. If it was our story, we wouldn't write it like this. We live faithful in our doubt by remembering his promises and his work. Remembering God's past action point us to the fulfillment of his future actions. The not yet fulfilled promises of God. And so we sit here in between the two advents seemingly in God's silence and we remember. We remember. We remember in the silence. We remember Habakkuk questions God's silence and then God's silence, and then he says, I wait, oh wait in silence and then God silences him and the whole world in Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then we come to chapter 3. Habakkuk being silenced by God. And I didn't read the first two verses. We'll get to that next week. But this is really important. I'm going to point out the first verse, right? In chapter 3, in the midst of his silence, amidst of being silent with God, in the midst of those advents waiting for God, Habakkuk sings a song. That's what, that's what the chapter 3 is. It's a song. Now, I don't think it's an overly cheerful song. But it's not a song of total despair. It's a song of hope in the midst of despair. Habakkuk 3.1 says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shiganoth. And Shiganoth is actually this term. It's actually a tune. That's what it is. We don't know what that tune sounds like, but we know it's a, it's a name of a tune. So pick up your own tune, right? I, don't, I think it's more of a dirge than a, uh, a cheery song, but that's what it is. So we know Habakkuk sings this, and we go to the last verse of Habakkuk, actually sings, it's for the stringed instruments. We know this whole thing is a song. 
Habakkuk sings a song of remembrance of God's faithfulness in his doubt and in his despair. In the midst of the silence, in the midst of his doubt towards God, in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his loneliness, what does he do? He turns and sings of God's faithfulness and begins to remember what God has done. In the midst of like, what are you not doing anything now? He sings a song about what God has done. God's faithfulness highlighted in these verses. Habakkuk 3, 3 and 3, 13. God came, and in verse 13, you went out. He's talking to God. You, Lord, went out. You did something. God came that advent from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Pern. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of your praise. Habakkuk is reminding himself in this moment that he is waiting for a God to come. And he remembers that by saying, God, you have come. And you did go out before your people and you worked for your people. In our advent, in our waiting, in our circumstance, in our despair, in our jubilance, whatever it is, we need to sing a song of remembrance that God came, that God has gone out for us, and he will do it again. He will do it again. Because he's promised it that he'll do it again. He promises I'm going to come back and resolve all of it. I will finish all of it. I will usher in justice. I will bring in peace, eternal. I will wipe away sin. I will wipe away the tears. Death will be no more. He will do it. He will intervene again because he has promised. Habakkuk's song in chapter 3 is a, a combining of a lot of different scriptural allusions. I'm actually not going to spend the time to point them all out to you because they're numerous. It's, he's not just like, hey, I'm just going to quote this one thing. He takes a lot of these allusions and just echoes them. A lot of the theophanies, the, the appearances of God, he, he puts in the song and, and melds them all together. There's, the, there's echoes, if you point it, to the song of Deborah in the book of Judges. There's echoes of the song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15. There's echoes of the Psalms that were repeated in him. And there's, if you, just, you just look through these like, oh yeah, I see uh, appearances of Judges and, and, and Gideon in here and, and, and Joshua in here, right? The sun and moon stand still. All these things. He's just, he's just come by like, all this knowledge I have at this moment, I'm going to put in a song, I'm going to blend it all together, and I'm going to sing, God, I know you did this in the past. I know you did this. The biggest echo, and I, I'm sure you heard it, the biggest allusion to, the, allusion to this in his prayer is the appearance of God at Sinai, which makes sense because this is the time, this is the big salvation in the Old Testament. Right? Where Paran actually is equal to Sinai here in that verse 3, Deuteronomy 33:2. Paran equals Sinai. And so in this stylized, poetic song, he retells of the plagues and God showing up to rescue his people. His people who have been enslaved after hundreds and hundreds of years and who have perceived that God has been silent to them, that God has disappeared, the people in Egypt, and God showed up and saved them in miraculous ways. 
Habakkuk 3.8. And then he asks, was your wrath against the rivers, right? Because he does all these uh, natural plagues, right? And, and he says like, was your wrath against all this creation? Was it against the rivers, O Lord? What personal name he uses there. Verse 8 transitions from God to second person to a personal covenant name. O you, Lord. Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode out on the horses on the chariot of salvation? When, when you split open the Red Sea? When you did the plagues in the river and the plagues of Egypt? Was your anger against this creation? The answer, this is, you know, I hope you get this. This is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. God's anger was not against creation. God's anger against, was against the people. His wrath was against his people, against the Egyptians, against all humanity. That is what God's wrath is against. Creation is just a bystander that gets infected by all of this. By our first sin that gets crumbled and gets punished for this. This is so important. The primary promise in Scripture that has played out over and over again. Salvation is not from evil, evil one. I mean, it is. But the primary gift of salvation is from God's wrath. From God's wrath. He is the one that we have offended. He is the one that we have harmed. He is the one that we have betrayed. And so God's grace is is not the removal of justice, but the justice is directed upon him on the cross for our sake. And if we're connected to him, if we're united with him, then that punishment goes on upon him and he receives the punishment. If it's not, it goes upon us and his wrath. Habakkuk 3.13, you went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. By the way, uh, is another, uh, we see it in the Psalms, is another uh, musical note. We don't know exactly what it means, but it's a musical note. Yeah. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. This is, right, this is a, a allusion back to the first promise of God. In Genesis 3.15. Do you remember that first promise? God shows up at our first sin. Adam and Eve, in their pride, went against God's word and listened to the serpent. And in the midst of that, God shows up and before he issues judgment to the man and to the woman, he issues a judgment to the serpent. And in the middle of that judgment, there is a promise of grace. It is, it is the first proclamation of the good news that is repeated throughout Scripture. Genesis 3.15, he says, The serpent I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? And so I just want you to understand what's happening here. Right? God is now, now we understand it quite clearly, right? That the serpent is going to nip at the heel of our Savior which he does at the cross, doesn't he? Harms him. Not permanently. He's not down and out. But what does Jesus do at the cross? 
He crushes the head of the evil one and evil. It's destroyed. Now we're waiting for the final fulfillment of that when he comes again. But it is completed at the cross. It is promised at the cross and is completed at the cross. Habakkuk goes all the way back and begins to remember all the promises of God and all the way that he's interacted. And back to the very first one to remind himself that God shows up in the darkness. God shows up in the despair because God made a promise and God keeps his promises. A promise that has been fulfilled for us and completed at the cross. The point in that is that in the darkness, in the, in the despair, Habakkuk remembers God's story. He remembers history. He remembers, he reminds himself and others and us, because we're here reading it today, what God has done. He tells the story of God's fulfilled promises and reminds himself that God will fulfill the promise that he just gave about judgment and grace. And what's fantastic is that we actually know that that actually judgment and grace happens for his people in the Babylonians. We, we, we know that experience. But we know that this is more than just that judgment. He's promising much more for you and I. The great preacher, uh, English preacher Martin Lord Jones said this. If God did not actually do the things recorded in the Old Testament for Israel, then the whole Bible may be just a piece of psychology meant to keep me happy. The Bible, however, plainly shows that my comfort and consolation lie in facts. The fact that God has done certain things and that they have literally happened. The God in whom I believe is the God who could, could and did divide the Red Sea and the River Jordan. In reminding himself and us of these things, Habakkuk is not just comforting himself by playing with ideas. He is speaking of the things that God has actually done. The Christian faith is solidly based upon facts, not ideas. And if the facts recorded in the Bible are not true, then I have no hope and no comfort. For we are not saved by ideas, but by facts and by events. And this is what Habakkuk is doing. In the midst of this, he is comforting himself. Says, I know God has done this. And he will do it again. Because he's promised it. I may not like the waiting. I may not like the moment. But this is what God has planned. And this is what God has done. And this is what he will do. We survive the present by remembering God's past that points us to our secured future. That's so important. We survive this present by, by looking back into the history and understanding this is what God has done and then we know that our future is secure because he's promised it. He will do it again. We live faithfully in our doubt by remembering God's faithfulness and how do we primarily remember God's history and God's faithfulness how do we do this we do it in worship 
We do it in worship. One of the reasons we come and gather in worship is to give God the glory. And we give God the glory everywhere. All moments. All, that's what we're called to do. And one of the primary truths that we come together, we give them to God. But the, one of the other main priorities where God calls us to do together, it's for our benefit, not his, not his benefit. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our recognition. He doesn't need our applause. This is for our benefit that we gather here every Sunday and any other times that we gather together. We gather together in our corporate worship because it's, it's not to hear a new word. It's not to hear a new prophecy or something exciting or clever or revolutionary because I will never give it to you because I am not clever and I'm not exciting and I'm not revolutionary. But we come together each and every week to hear the old, old story again and again and again because it's what we need. It's what we need to survive the present. The gospel over and over again. The good news of God's promises that God, the good news of God showing up again and again. The good news of justice and grace accomplished at the cross. We remember God's past to proclaim his coming and our future. We have this passage, and I quote it before and often, right? Hebrews 10, 23, 25, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as to see the day drawing near the purpose of this as the day is drawing near we ought to do this more and more and more to get us to that day that final day the day of the new earth and the new heavens and a judgment and we do this right because he who's promised is faithful. The one who promised, God is faithful. And we remind us of ourselves of God's faithfulness. And that's why we get together. How do we do this in our worship? We do it in our songs. Our songs ought to repeat and remind us of God's faithfulness in the past and in the present and what he'll do for us in the future. We do that in our prayers. Honest real prayers and so we turn and we don't just give god hey this is my moment he knows our moment it's okay to do that moment it's okay to give your doubt and grief and complaints and all that is to god but turn and remind yourself of what he has done maybe you can't think of the moment what he's done for you in your life but you can go back and look at scripture and what he's done for his people not small insignificant things we do that in the reading of Scripture, the story over and over again. It's, it's one of the reasons that I'll go through a whole book because I want you to hear the full witness of God. It's one of the reasons I don't just preach the New Testament. I want you to hear the Old Testament. I want you to hear what He's done in the past. 
We do it in our, our litanies and our tradition that remind us each and every year a cycle. It's one of the reasons why there's a church calendar. I mean, some traditions don't like the church calendar, but they remind us of certain things over and over again, the cycle of our life. And it brings us comfort when we do those things. It brings us comfort on this Advent candle. We know, remember what this season is about every day of our existence. That's why every Sunday we talk about the resurrection. It's not just Easter. We might make a special big deal on Easter, but every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. There are these patterns that God has established in our life. Remind and encourage us and to comfort us. We do it in our preaching. And this is why I want just to, re- how do I present the gospel each and every week? Not something new. In communion, we come and we gather around God's table to remind us. It's not just a remembrance. I don't, it's more than that. But we'll, right now, it's also a remembrance. Remembrance of what God has done for us. And it also points us to the Messianic banquet We do it at baptism. Baptism isn't about your profession of faith or how you're adhering to God. It's about what God is doing for you and what God has done for you and his promises for you. That's what we believe about baptism. That you belong to God's people. We gather together faithfully as brothers and sisters in our doubt to remind each other of God's faithfulness each and every week. This is how you and I survive these moments. This is how you and I can survive a pandemic. We remind each other that God is faithful, that God is in control, and that God has made promises. And every time you are absent from worship, and there's good reasons to be absent, right? People get sick, right? Nowadays, you're sick, stay home, (laughs) right? But every time you are absent, you are denying yourself the opportunity to remember. You are denying the opportunity for others to remind it by you. When we sing together, I mean, I love singing and then stopping singing and listening to all of you. So when you're not singing, you're depriving others from being reminded by the multitude of voices. I don't care how you sing. That's not what encourages me. Trust me. It's the the faithfulness in your voice, the proclaiming God's goodness. And every time you're absent or you put something ahead of corporate worship, you are in danger of forgetting. Because I don't know about you, but it's easy to forget. It's easy to be overwhelmed. It's easy to be overtaken by that darkness. And it's easy to forget in the moments. But this is not just how we survive in these moments. This is how we will thrive in this world. This is how we will thrive in the darkness, by remembering God's Faithfulness. I did talk about singing today, right? It's a song. Sarah McLaughlin has a song. I'm sure you have a, Will you remember me? But that we, I actually don't want you to remember me. But will you remember with me? 
Will you faithfully remember with me in your doubt and in your struggles, in your hardships, in your grief? Will you gather together, encourage me and encourage others by remembering who God is and what he's done and what he will do? so we can survive the present, so we can thrive in the present and be assured of God's secured future for all of us. Let us pray. Gracious Father, loving Lord, it's not easy day in and day out. It's not easy uh, being with you and it's not always easy turning to you. It's, it is easy to rely on myself and to, to rely on my own ability even though I know it fails. Lord, help us encourage each other not to live in our pride but live faithfully by turning towards our doubt and our grief and our despair. In any circumstance, we turn to you and help us to remind each other in our worship, in our words, day in and day out, every time we gather, of the good news of who you are and what you've done and what you will do. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for the preservation of this. Of this. Thank you for the ability to gather together. Lord, I know you'll do it again. You've promised it. Encourage us today and help us be encouragers, faithful encouragers tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.